Let me say how encouraged I am by the, the eager response to the Word of God. There are some places I go, and it's a bit like force-feeding a patient, you know. Uh, uh, I, I'm just very encouraged by the, the eagerness with which the Word of God is received, and it has greatly encouraged me. And I tell people as I travel from place to place that um, if I'm gone 50 weeks a year, I can't be, but if I were... I can get to 50 assemblies. Well, there are about 1,200 assemblies that I know of in North America, and so I have to pick carefully where I go and where I spend my time. And I don't come to a place unless I think there's huge potential. And I really think this is a strategic part of the country, and when God works in an area like this, the blessing can reach out into the surrounding areas. And so I'm here because I, I think there's a great opportunity here to see God work in a marvelous way in this part of the country. And I think it's a, a key area, and uh, we need to you know, foster the encouragement of new works getting started and the strengthening of the things that are here. I'd like to read a few verses from Acts chapter 17 this evening. The Apostle Paul is, in a special way, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And we have recorded for us in the Word of God, more than any other man, the preaching of Paul and the prayers of Paul. Now, the Jews understood a little bit about preaching. They'd had a lot of prophets sent to them to preach, and they understood what good preaching was. And they knew what prayer was to God. Now, we Gentiles, on the other hand, we were digging around in the entrails of chickens trying to figure out the will of God and worshipping sticks and stones and all sorts of strange things. And so we needed some help in this department. And so the Spirit of God has seen fit to uh, include in the sacred record the heartfelt prayers and the preaching of the Apostle Paul. There are about 15 prayers of Paul and about as many sermons or messages that he preaches in various and sundry forms. Uh, preaching in different styles in different ways. Sometimes he is uh, teaching the Christians. Sometimes it's expository. Sometimes uh, he's explaining Old Testament types and shadows. Uh, sometimes he is uh, teaching the doctrines of salvation or the Christian life. Sometimes it's devotional in which he's giving portraits of the Lord Jesus. Uh, sometimes it's um, uh, testimonial in which he speaks of his own personal experiences with the Lord. And these are all very helpful to the child of God. They're not there simply as mere history. They're intended to be embraced by us as something that we could do too. And these model prayers, as we look at them, we'll notice that 14 of the 15 have to do with spiritual issues. Only one has to do with material things. That was when he prayed three times that his thorn be removed and God said no. Uh, so the bulk of the prayers have to do with spiritual things. So when we think of our public prayer, our corporate prayer, uh, the question is, would that be the proportion? Would there be one out of 15 prayer requests for material physical things and 14 out of 15 would be for spiritual blessing? Or would it be the other way around? So if we really want to follow the New Testament pattern, it may be that we'll have to think about that and begin to take these beautiful prayers of the Apostle and pray them up to God. We know they're the will of God because they're in the Word of God. 
And so to pray for the saints, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will, for example. We've been talking today about open doors and walking through open doors. Wouldn't that be a good thing? To pray for the saints. There are some people here, I know, you're, you're in, at crossroads in your life. What, maybe you're going to retire. What are you going to do during your retirement? Or, or you feel like you're being moved into another part of the country. Or exercise to see a, a new assembly started. And I mean, there are a lot of very big issues at stake right here in this room. I know that. Well, that would be a great thing to pray, wouldn't it? That we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Um, to pray that um, we might be increasing in the knowledge of God. That we might be fruitful in every good work. That we might, as the Apostle wrote, be filled with all the fullness of God. These prayers, if we, if we took a look at them and turned them into our own prayer life, wove them into our own requests, they would greatly enlarge our scanty thoughts. They would, they would make us pray prayers worthy of God. Sometimes we ask for such tiny things. It's like asking for change for a penny. God says, I don't think I can break it down that far. Ask me something worthy of a king. Take advantage of my generosity. A story is told of Alexander the Great that when he would uh, take a city, some of the best of the spoils of war would be put in a tent and his officers would be allowed to come and take their pick. And there was one officer who basically cleaned out the tent every time. And his aide said to Alexander, you should stop him from doing that. Alexander said, I like that man. He's the only one that treats me like a king. God can afford it, you know. He's not impoverished by giving. And God challenges us. He loves boldness in faith. He says, take advantage of me. Ask me great things. Let me show myself strong on behalf of those who put their trust in me. Well, here in chapter 17, we have an example of Paul's preaching. And you will notice that to him it is not some dry theological issue. He is traveling through um, Greece and um, leaving Berea. He comes to Athens. And Athens is really only to be a rendezvous point. Uh, between he and some of his fellow laborers. But we read that in verse 16, when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Have you ever stood in a big city and watched the crowds go by and have your spirit moved within you? It's quite a thing, isn't it? It's, It's almost an overwhelming thing. I remember when my father visited China for the first time. He went to Beijing and he sent us a postcard from Beijing. And all it said was, Dear kids, one billion souls loved above. Signed, Dad. He was just so overwhelmed with the thought of it. Now, the Apostle Paul... Looking at this great city of Athens, it's been in the, on the televisions recently, a city that was known for its culture and its architecture, its sophistication. But when Paul looked at it, he wasn't impressed with any of that. He, he didn't speak about the interesting columns or the, or the Parthenon or the, uh, the magnificence of its culture. He noticed a very sad thing about the city. 
they were wholly given to idolatry. They had given their hearts to things of their own creation, and he, he sensed this deep spiritual loneliness in the city, this emptiness. He, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Now, is that true of us? I mean, suppose somebody dropped at our feet, and they're in the, the, the death throes, they're dying of a heart attack, and they say, help me, help me, tell me, what do I need to know to go to heaven? Well, all of a sudden, we'd be quite, I mean, we might say in, at other times, look, I'm really, I, I'm not, I don't know how to witness, and I really don't, I, I wouldn't know what to say. But at that moment, I think we'd try to find something to say, wouldn't we? And that's our problem, that when we see people, we don't think of them in that condition. But God does. God says they're a heartbeat from hell. He says the wrath of God already hangs over their head. It's not a matter of we'll see how it's going to come out. No, they're, they're already condemned. They're condemned already. And they're without hope. And they're without God. And they're lost. So if we could just see people as they really are, and realize that no one can boast himself of tomorrow. I just got the news before I drove down here that one of my best friends growing up, young fellow that I spent all, most of my time with and went to the same assembly, same Sunday school, same youth group, same high school, a uh, year older than I was. He, he got some pains. He, he, his office, he's an attorney. His office was near to the hospital. He walked over, and they gave him something, and they left the room and turned around and came back, and he was dead. Healthy one day, gone the next. Well, we all know that. We, we know that that neighbor that you wave to and never quite get around to talking to, I mean, you mean to do it someday. But one day, they're going to be gone, right? But somehow, in the busyness of life, in the, in the rat race, as we call it, we, we somehow lose touch with the fact, as, as has well been said, that, that we should preach as a dying man to dying men. In other words, we have limitations to our opportunity. We're not here for long. And those people to whom we preach have a limitation of opportunity because they're not here for long either. Some folks here were telling me they're from North Dakota, and it brought back a lot of memories because about 25 years ago, I took six young men out to North Dakota, and we visited each of the assemblies out there. While I was out there preaching... I talked to my son one night on the phone, and he asked me what I was doing, and I told him that we were like, doing tract work and gospel work. And So when he got off the phone, he said to his mommy, I want to do this. And so she got some gospel papers, and he started off down the street. He was just about well, not quite five years old, and he went down the street knocking on each door and handing out one of these little tracts. Well, he had gone to the far end, and he was coming back, and there was a corner lot, and this lady who lived there, she spent all her time on her knees out on the grass, um, working away on her grass. And, and so he went to hand her one, and she said, what is it? He said, it's about Jesus. She said, I don't want it. He said, I think you need it. She said, I don't want it. <laughs> so he continued on down the street. Well, when he told Louise, she thought he might be offended by this, but he felt sorry for her. Isn't that nice? Huh? Uh, the next day, he decided he'd do it again. And so he got a different track, and away he went again, down the same street. Not God has spoken once, yes, twice. And so he went down and visited each of the doors, 
and again turned the corner and here was the woman out worshipping her the grass god and uh, he made as if he was going to go by her and she said are those some more of those papers about Jesus and he said yes she said well maybe I will take one and so he went over and gave her one so anyway I came home a week or so later and um I heard the little story, you know, and, and we headed off. I guess we we went over to see her parents or something, and my wife's parents. And, and we came back that evening, and here was the coroner's station wagon in this woman's driveway. Found out that she died. Well, the next morning, a Christian lady whose, whose property ran up to this woman's property around the corner, she called up my wife, and she was heartbroken. And she said, you know, God spoke to me and he told me to talk to that woman and I didn't do it. Now, the Bible says, let no man take thy crown. And I take it that that means that if I don't do something, somebody else will do it. And somebody will get my crown. In other words, God's work will get done. The question is whether I'll get in on the joy of it. So I'm not going to tell you tonight that if you don't witness to someone, they'll go to hell and it'll be your fault. And they'll, they'll fall into the pit pointing at you and saying, it's your fault. And, and if, you hadn't, if you had told me, you know, now you're going to be in heaven and I'm going to be in hell, I'm not sure that I can really believe that. I, I think that God is a lot bigger than me. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans deals with this issue. And he says, um, how shall they hear without a preacher? And the obvious question, I mean, you don't have to read the rest of the chapter, do you? You know exactly what the answer is. Well, they can't hear. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says they actually, they have heard. God has not left it entirely to us, has he? The Spirit has gone into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God uses creation, he uses conscience, he uses the scriptures, he uses history, he uses the incarnation, he uses the long-distance testimony of believers. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, he says. He uses all different tactics. He uses cataclysms, tragedies in people's lives. God has all sorts of sheepdogs to nip at the sheep's heels to bring them to the shepherd. And we are one agent that God uses, hopefully a very effective agent. But God has called us to be witnesses, not to be the judge, not to be the prosecutor, but to be a witness. And a witness simply does one thing. He tells what he knows. He tells what he knows. Like the blind man, one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. Now that shouldn't be a difficult thing for us to do. If you know what's happened to you, tell people. Say, listen. Can I tell you the most amazing thing that ever happened to me? Nobody will ever say no. They want to know what's an amazing thing happened to you. And you can tell them very simply, you may not think much of him, but I tell you this, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. He's changed my life. He's given me joy and peace in believing. You'll have to come to him willingly or you won't come at all. Nobody can force this down your throat. You need to receive him personally. But I want to tell you, I highly recommend him because he's the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, when the Apostle Paul preached there at Mars Hill, it began with a dispute, we read in verse 17. He disputed in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with those that met with him. Here he was, behind closed doors, so to speak, with the Jews in the synagogue, and then out on the street talking to people about the Lord Jesus. 
in the marketplace of the free exchange of ideas. He was out there speaking for Christ. You know, it's amazing to me when political activities are going on that there are young people by the tens of thousands who will lick stamps, who will shake hands, kiss babies, uh, do whatever has to be done to get their person elected. We think of the words of David when he said, is there not a cause? I mean, isn't there something worth fighting for? Isn't there something worth living for? Yes, there is a cause. It's the cause of Christ, isn't it? And we have this privilege. And you know, words are such a potent force. If I say um, watermelon, like you had absolutely no thought of a watermelon just two minutes ago, I presume. Is there anyone here who's thinking of watermelons? But I made you think of that, didn't I? I actually got into your brain and I put it in there. There's tremendous power in the word. It's like a seed that's sown in the ground. And once it's sown in the ground, well, there's always the possibility, the, the power of germination. There's life in that seed. And so the words that we speak, the words of man, they die on the air. But the word of God is incorruptible seed that lives and abides forever. And once it gets into a person's mind, it will be in their mind forever. It'll never leave. And so even decades later, the Spirit of God is able to take that verse, that word from God, and is able to germinate it and bring life out of that seed. So when we go out into the day, we have it in our power to make people think about eternal issues. They may try to rebuff us. They may say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to it. Too late. <laughs> Sorry. You already heard it. <laughs> right? It's in there now. And they may argue with us, dispute as the word is here. They may dispute with us. But the fact is that when they get into Betty by at night and the Spirit of God begins to work with them, it's really hard to argue with the Holy Spirit of God. You can't get your hands on him. And he works it. And he cultivates that truth. We are these agents whom God has sent into the world, and we have two bags, two seed bags. And over one shoulder we have the flesh, and over the other shoulder we have the spirit. And if we sow to the flesh, of the flesh we reach, reap corrupt, corruption, and if we sow to the spirit, we of the spirit reap life everlasting. Everybody is sowing everywhere we go. We leave seed. We leave influence. And it's either that which is fleshly, that which is of self and of time, or it's that which is of eternity and of the spirit and of life. And so as we go through the day, here and there, we have a little opportunity to pointedly but tenderly sow seed into people's minds. Sow eternity, sow thoughts of God. We have the privilege of making people think about God. I was telling the folks out at camp that we, I was down in Albany, Georgia years ago with old Lester Wilson. And he was well on in years, but he still had that big, full preacher's voice, a big sepulchral voice. And we were walking through a shopping center, walking through a Sears store, and way across the store he saw a young fellow. And... Um, 
His name was Jason. And Jason, once in a while, came out to the chapel. And so he called across the Sears store. Hello, Jason. Everybody turned. Ooh, where, where did that voice come from, you see? And they all looked at this big, gray-haired, silver-haired man. And Jason saw him and said, Oh, hello, Mr. Wilson. Jason, have you thought about your soul today? <laughs> well, if Jason hadn't thought about his soul up till then, not only he, but everybody else in the Sears store did the same thing, didn't they? What a question to ask. Have you thought about your soul? It was a pointed message, wasn't it? It was clear and certain. Nobody had any confusion about what Lester Wilson was getting at. There is a dimension to your life. You're neglecting it. You think about the body. You're not thinking about your soul. It's time to do it, isn't it? So as we, as we go out into the day, our words are tremendously potent, tremendously powerful. And a little word spoken, a gospel verse on a card... You know, you go into work and you, and you befriend someone and um, instead of preaching at them necessarily, to write out a really nice Bible verse. Don't put the reference on it. Just leave it and say, look, look what I was reading today. What do you think of that? What is this? Uh, it's an old book I read sometimes. What, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think it means? I was reading recently of the, uh, the brother, uh, Lord Radstock, who was single-handed in opening up the gospel to Russia. Tremendous work of God just before the Bolshevik Revolution. And he came to be convinced of the power of the word of God. Because in a nearby hospital, a sailor from Spain had grown sick and had been put into this hospital. And Lord Radstock didn't know any Spanish. But he got a Spanish Bible, and he would sit by the bedside of the man, and just in his own halting Spanish accent, he would read the Spanish Bible. And one day, they found someone who actually spoke Spanish and came, and the man told how he had been saved just listening to that rather broken reading of the Word of God. And Lord Radstock was convinced that the Word of God had a power in it all of itself, and that the proclamation of the word of God reached into the souls of men and was an active agent. It wasn't simply something that they had to do something with, like a calculus textbook. If I didn't do anything to my calculus text, it sure didn't do anything for me. But the great thing about the word of God is it is a living book. It has a life of its own. And it's able to get in and do things and argue its own case. When people disagree, it can argue its own case. There's an old brother I met. I visited just a, a few weeks ago up in Quebec. Uh, Joseph Tremblay was a Catholic priest down in South America. And he got bored giving the Catholic liturgy. And so he began to listen to Billy Graham's Hour of Decision radio program. And then whatever Billy Graham preached on, he'd preach it in the Catholic Church. Not, not necessarily the same message, but at least from the same text. And one night he heard Billy Graham speak on, Depart from me, I never knew you. And so the next week he got up in the Catholic Church and he preached on the verse, Depart from me, I never knew you. And the Spirit of God said to him, I never knew you. What was that? I never knew you. He could hear it as clear as, as a, a, a voice from heaven. And he started to argue with the Spirit of God. What do you mean you never knew me? <laughs> and the people are just sitting there listening to Joseph Tremblay argue with God. I, I baptize babies. I suffer privation. I'm a missionary here. I never knew you. 
I never knew. Finally, he broke down in tears and he fled the pulpit. And he went to his little room and he got down and he said, Oh God, you don't know me. I never knew you. And he began to search the scriptures and Joseph Trombley got saved on his knees in his little room with an open scripture. Child of God, you're holding on your lap dynamite. The power of God unto salvation. Able to blast the most difficult sinner from the bedrock of this world. A single word can deliver a soul. I would like to encourage you, as, as we see the Apostle Paul, one lonely man on this occasion. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that he never worked alone. <laughs> but on this occasion, his, his fellow, his compadres hadn't shown up yet. And he was standing just at the bus stop waiting for them to show up. And he couldn't, he couldn't bear it. He had to go and preach. And so all alone, he starts preaching. And imagine he takes on the city of Athens. And then these philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, encountered him and they said, what will this babbler say? In other words, this unlettered, ignorant man. What, what, what on earth? What has he got to say? And to humiliate him, they decided to take him up to the Areopagus, the high court. And for him to present his case before the intelligentsia before the, the, the highest class of philosopher in the ancient world. Now, imagine your car breaking down in Boston and, and you get out and you start witnessing to the, the tow truck fellow and the, and the auto mechanic and uh, somebody calls up somebody else and pretty soon a crowd develops around at the gas station where your car is getting fixed and then suddenly one of the university professors from, from uh, Harvard pulls up and says, what on earth are you talking about here? And they say, well, this guy, he's talking about this, this wonderful news from God, a word from God about something about peace with God and all. And, and the professor says, well, I know how to fix this. And he comes over and he says to you, buddy, get in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you up here, buddy. I'm going to show you you got nothing worth saying. You are a babbler and nothing more. And he hauls you over to Harvard, and he puts you up in front of all the professors at Harvard and says, okay, now say it. I mean, it's, it's okay to talk about it in the market. It's okay to talk about these, these uh, auto mechanics. But now go ahead, if you dare. And Paul begins to preach a message. It's, it's the message of his lifetime. He is surrounded by hostile forces. And he begins to preach. And I tell you, the sweep of his message is magnificent. He goes right back to the creation of the world. And he spreads the whole thing out before them. And he, and he gives them a portrait of a God that must have taken their breath away. He says, he calls him the unknown God in verse 23. That's the word agnostos. The one you ignorantly worship. Ouch. That was a blow, wasn't it? The one you ignorantly worship. Verse 24, God that made the worlds. We may know God in creation. God has revealed himself in creation. Romans chapter 1, the apostle says that the invisible things of God may be known by the visible creation. But more than that, he's not only, you notice the repetition of the word all here. He's not only the maker of all things. He is the Lord of all. The Lord of heaven and earth. 
And, verse 25, he is the giver of all. I once preached the gospel to a man, and he said to me, turning his nose up at me, No thanks, I don't take charity. Really? No. I said, well, then spit it out. He said, what? I said, that breath you just sucked into your lungs, spit it out. Don't you realize that every mouthful of food you ever ate, every conscious thought, every ounce of energy, every penny you ever earned, every breath you ever sucked into your lungs, God gave it to you. He is the giver of all. Your life is in his hand. It's a shocking thing to mock the God in whose hand your breath is. That's a really bad policy, isn't it? But he's not only the giver of all, he is the sustainer of all. He gives life and breath and all things. He's the God who, who not only initially gave you your life, he's the God who, who keeps you alive. And the fact that you're alive today and that he didn't sweep you into eternity yesterday is another manifestation of his long-suffering grace. It's the goodness of God that ought to lead you to repentance. But then he says that we may know him not only in creation and in our personal experience because of his goodness to us, but we may know him in history. He's the God who, as verse 26, determined the times before appointed and the bounds of the nation's habitations. God has moved in history. The turning back of the Spanish Armada, the destruction of Napoleon's army in the snow, the turning back of Adolf Hitler. These were not mere accidents of history. God was at work. History is his story. And we see the sovereignty of God working in the affairs of men. And as we read through the Old Testament, imagine that a man like Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled an empire from India to North Africa, 126 countries under his sway, and that that man was brought to such a humble state, hobbled in his own royal garden, eating grass like an ox. He writes his own testimonial, his own tract, and he writes, those that exalt themselves, God is able to abase. <laughs> God knows how to get the attention of the most powerful and mighty men in the world. So if we could just see people as they really are. And realize that no one can boast himself of tomorrow. I just got the news before I drove down here that one of my best friends growing up, young fellow that I spent all, most of my time with and went to the same assembly, same Sunday school, same youth group, same high school, a uh, year older than I was. He, he got some pains. He, he, his office, he's an attorney. His office was near to the hospital. He walked over and they gave him something and they left the room and turned around and came back and he was dead. Healthy one day, gone the next. Oh, we all know that. We, we know that that neighbor that you wave to and never quite get around to talking to, I mean, you mean to do it someday. That one day, they're going to be gone, right? But somehow, in the busyness of life, in the, in the rat race, as we call it, we, we somehow lose touch with the fact, as, as has well been said, that, that we should preach as a dying man to dying men. In other words, 
We have limitations to our opportunity. We're not here for long. And those people to whom we preach have a limitation of opportunity because they're not here for long either. Some folks here were telling me they're from North Dakota, and it brought back a lot of memories because about 25 years ago, I took six young men out to North Dakota, and we visited each of the assemblies out there. While I was out there preaching, I talked to my son one night on the phone, and he asked me what I was doing, and I told him that we were doing tract work and gospel work. And So when he got off the phone, he said to his mommy, I want to do this. And so she got some gospel papers, and he started off down the street. He was just about well, not quite five years old, and he went down the street knocking on each door and handing out one of these little tracks. Well, he had gone to the far end, and he was coming back, and there was a corner lot, and this lady who lived there, she spent all her time on her knees out on the grass, um, working away on her grass. And, and so he went to hand her one, and she said, what is it? He said, it's about Jesus. She said, I don't want it. He said, I think you need it. She said, I don't want it. <laughs> so he continued on down the street. Well, when he told Louise, she thought he might be offended by this, but he felt sorry for her. Isn't that nice? Huh? The next day, he decided he'd do it again. And so he got a different track, and away he went again, down the same street. Not God has spoken once, yes, twice. And so he went down and visited each of the doors and again turned the corner, and here was the woman out worshiping her, the grass god. And uh, he made as if he was going to go by her. And she said, are those some more of those papers about Jesus? And he said, yes. She said, well, maybe I will take one. And so he went over and gave her one. So anyway, I came home a week or so later, and um, I heard the little story, you know, and, and we headed off. I guess we, we went over to see her parents or something, and, and my wife's parents, and, and we came back that evening, and here was the coroner's station wagon in this woman's driveway. Found out that she died. Well, the next morning, a Christian lady whose, whose property ran up to this woman's property around the corner she called up my wife, and she was heartbroken. And she said, you know, God spoke to me, and he told me to talk to that woman, and I didn't do it. Now, the Bible says, let no man take thy crown. And I take it that that means that if I don't do something, somebody else will do it. And somebody will get my crown. In other words, God's work will get done. The question is whether I'll get in on the joy of it. So I'm not going to tell you tonight that if you don't witness to someone, they'll go to hell and it'll be your fault. And they'll, they'll fall into the pit pointing at you and saying, it's your fault. And, and if, you hadn't, if you had told me, you know, now you're going to be in heaven and I'm going to be in hell, I'm not sure that I can really believe that. I, I think that God is a lot bigger than me. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans deals with this issue. And he says, um, how shall they hear without a preacher? And the obvious question, I mean, you don't have to read the rest of the chapter, do you? You know exactly what the answer is. Well, they can't hear. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says they actually, they have heard. God has not left it entirely to us, has he? The Spirit has gone into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God uses creation, he uses conscience, he uses the scriptures, he uses history, he uses the incarnation, he uses the long-distance testimony of believers. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, he says. He uses all different tactics. He uses cataclysms, tragedies in people's lives. God has all sorts of sheepdogs to nip at the sheep's heels to bring them to the shepherd. And we are one agent that God uses. 
hopefully a very effective agent. But God has called us to be witnesses, not to be the judge, not to be the prosecutor, but to be a witness. And a witness simply does one thing. He tells what he knows. He tells what he knows. Like the blind man, one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. Now that shouldn't be a difficult thing for us to do. If you know what's happened to you, tell people. Say, listen, can I tell you the most amazing thing that ever happened to me? Nobody will ever say no. They want to know what's an amazing thing happened to you. And you can tell them very simply, you may not think much of him, but I tell you this, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. He's changed my life. He's given me joy and peace in believing. You'll have to come to him willingly or you won't come at all. Nobody can force this down your throat. You need to receive him personally. But I want to tell you, I highly recommend him because he's the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, when the Apostle Paul preached there at Mars Hill, it began with a dispute, we read in verse 17. He disputed in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with those that met with him. Here he was behind closed doors, so to speak, with the Jews in the synagogue and then out on the street talking to people about the Lord Jesus in the marketplace of the free exchange of ideas. He was out there speaking for Christ. You know, it's amazing to me when political activities are going on that there are young people by the tens of thousands who will lick stamps, who will shake hands, kiss babies, uh, do whatever has to be done to get their person elected. We think of the words of David when he said, Is there not a cause... I mean, isn't there something worth fighting for? Isn't there something worth living for? Yes, there is a cause. It's the cause of Christ, isn't it? And we have this privilege. And, you know, words are such a potent force. If I say um, watermelon, like you had absolutely no thought of a watermelon just two minutes ago, I presume. Is there anyone here who's thinking of watermelons? But I made you think of that, didn't I? I actually got into your brain and I put it in there. There's tremendous power in the word. It's like a seed that's sown in the ground. And once it's sown in the ground, well, there's always the possibility, the the power of germination. There's life in that seed. And so the words that we speak, the words of man, they die on the air. But the word of God is incorruptible seed. That lives and abides forever. And once it gets into a person's mind, it will be in their mind forever. It'll never leave. And so even decades later, the Spirit of God is able to take that verse, that word from God, and is able to germinate it and bring life out of that seed. So when we go out into the day, we have it in our power to make people think about eternal issues. They may try to rebuff us. They may say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to it. Too late. (laughs) Sorry. You already heard it. (laughs) Right? It's in there now. And they may argue with us, dispute as the word is here. They may dispute with us, but the fact is that when they get into Betty by at night and the Spirit of God begins to work with them, it's really hard to argue with the Holy Spirit of God. You can't get your hands on him. And he works it. And he cultivates that truth. 
we are these agents whom God has sent into the world, and we have two bags, two seed bags. And over one shoulder we have the flesh, and over the other shoulder we have the spirit. And if we sow to the flesh, of the flesh we reach reap corrupt corruption and if we sow to the spirit we of the spirit reap life everlasting everybody is sowing everywhere we go we leave seed we leave influence and it's either that which is fleshly that which is of self and of time or it's that which is of eternity and of the spirit and of life and so as we go through the day here and there we have a little opportunity to pointedly but tenderly sow seed into people's minds. Sow eternity, sow thoughts of God. We have the privilege of making people think about God. I was telling the folks out at camp that we, I was down in Albany, Georgia years ago with old Lester Wilson. And he was well on in years, but he still had that big, full preacher's voice, a big sepulchral voice. And we were walking through a shopping center, walking through a Sears store, and way across the store he saw a young fellow, and um, his name was Jason. And Jason once in a while came out to the chapel. And so he called across the Sears store, Hello, Jason! Everybody turned, Ooh, where, where did that voice come from, you see? And they all looked at this big, gray-haired, silver-haired man. And Jason saw him and said, Oh, hello, Mr. Wilson! Jason, have you thought about your soul today? (laughs) Well, if Jason hadn't thought about his soul up till then, not only he, but everybody else in the Sears store did the same thing, didn't they? What a question to ask. Have you thought about your soul? It was a pointed message, wasn't it? It was clear and certain. Nobody had any confusion about what Lester Wilson was getting at. There is a dimension to your life, you're neglecting it. You think about the body, you're not thinking about your soul. It's time to do it, isn't it? So as we, as we go out into the day, our words are tremendously potent, tremendously powerful. And a little word spoken, a gospel verse on a card. You know, you go into work and you, and you befriend someone and... Um, Instead of preaching at them necessarily, to write out a really nice Bible verse. Don't put the reference on it. Just leave it and say, look, look what I was reading today. What do you think of that? What is this? Uh, it's an old book I read sometimes. What, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think it means? I was reading recently of the, uh, the brother, uh, Lord Radstock, who was single-handed in opening up the gospel to Russia. Tremendous work of God just before the Bolshevik Revolution. And he came to be convinced of the power of the word of God because in a nearby hospital, a sailor from Spain had grown sick and had been put into this hospital. And Lord Radstock didn't know any Spanish. But he got a Spanish Bible and he would sit by the bedside of the man and just in his own halting Spanish accent, he would read the Spanish Bible. And one day... They found someone who actually spoke Spanish and came, and the man told how he had been saved just listening to that rather broken reading of the Word of God. And Lord Radstock was convinced that the Word of God had a power in it all of itself, and that the proclamation of the Word of God 
reached into the souls of men and was an active agent. It wasn't simply something that they had to do something with, like a calculus textbook. If I didn't do anything to my calculus text, it sure didn't do anything for me. But the great thing about the Word of God is it is a living book. It has a life of its own. And it's able to get in and do things and argue its own case. When people disagree, it can argue its own case. There's an old brother I met. I visited just a a few weeks ago up in Quebec. Uh, Joseph Tremblay was a Catholic priest down in South America. And he got bored giving the Catholic liturgy. And so he began to listen to Billy Graham's Hour of Decision radio program. And then whatever Billy Graham preached on, he'd preach it in the Catholic Church. (laughs) Not necessarily the same message, but at least from the same text. And one night he heard Billy Graham speak on, Depart from me, I never knew you. And so the next week he got up in the Catholic Church and he preached on the verse, Depart from me, I never knew you. And the Spirit of God said to him, I never knew you. What was that? I never knew you. He could hear it as clear as as a, a, a voice from heaven. And he started to argue with the Spirit of God. What do you mean you never knew me? (laughs) And the people are just sitting there listening to Joseph Tremblay argue with God. I I baptize babies. I suffer privation. I'm a missionary here. I never knew you. I never knew you. Finally, he broke down in tears and he fled the pulpit. And he went to his little room and he got down and he said, Oh God, you don't know me. I never knew you. And he began to search the scriptures and Joseph Tremblay got saved on his knees in his little room with an open scripture. Child of God, you're holding on your lap dynamite. The power of God unto salvation. Able to blast the most difficult sinner from the bedrock of this world. A single word can deliver a soul. I would like to encourage you as as we see the Apostle Paul, one lonely man. On this occasion, now I I mentioned earlier that he never worked alone, (laughs) but on this occasion his his fellow, his compadres hadn't shown up yet and he was standing just at the bus stop waiting for them to show up and he he couldn't bear it. He had to go and preach and so all alone he starts preaching and imagine he takes on the city of Athens and then These philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, encountered him and they said, What will this babbler say? In other words, this unlettered, ignorant man. What what on earth? What has he got to say? And to humiliate him, they decided to take him up to the Areopagus, the high court. And for him to present his case before the intelligentsia before the, the, the highest class of philosopher in the ancient world. Now, imagine your car breaking down in Boston and, and you get out and you start witnessing to the, the tow truck fellow and the, and the auto mechanic and uh, somebody calls up somebody else and pretty soon a crowd develops around at the gas station where your car is getting fixed and then suddenly one of the university professors from, from uh, Harvard pulls up and says, what on earth are you talking about here? And they say, well, this guy, he's talking about this, this wonderful news from God, a word from God about something about peace with God and all. And, and the professor says, well, I know how to fix this. And he comes over and he says to you, buddy, get in. 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you up here, buddy. I'm going to show you. you got nothing worth saying. You are a babbler and nothing more. And he hauls you over to Harvard, and he puts you up in front of all the professors at Harvard and says, okay, now say it. I mean, it's, it's okay to talk about it in the market. It's okay to talk about these, these uh, auto mechanics. But now go ahead, if you dare. And Paul begins to preach a message. It's, it's the message of his lifetime. He is surrounded by hostile forces. And he begins to preach. And I tell you, the sweep of his message is magnificent. He goes right back to the creation of the world. And he spreads the whole thing out before them. And he, and he gives them a portrait of a God that must have taken their breath away. He says, he calls him the unknown God in verse 23. That's the word agnostos. The one you ignorantly worship. Ouch. That was a blow, wasn't it? The one you ignorantly worship. Verse 24, God that made the worlds. We may know God in creation. God has revealed himself in creation. Romans chapter 1, the apostle says that the invisible things of God may be known by the visible creation. But more than that, he's not only, you notice the repetition of the word all here. He's not only the maker of all things, he is the Lord of all, the Lord of heaven and earth. And, verse 25, he is the giver of all. I once preached the gospel to a man, and he said to me, turning his nose up at me, No thanks, I don't take charity. Really? No. I said, well, then spit it out. He said, what? I said, that breath you just sucked into your lungs, spit it out. But don't you realize that every mouthful of food you ever ate, every conscious thought, every ounce of energy, every penny you ever earned, every breath you ever sucked into your lungs, God gave it to you. He is the giver of all. Your life is in his hand. It's a shocking thing to mock the God in whose hand your breath is. That's a really bad policy, isn't it? But he's not only the giver of all, he is the sustainer of all. He gives life and breath and all things. He's the God who, who not only initially gave you your life, he's the God who, who keeps you alive. And the fact that you're alive today and that he didn't sweep you into eternity yesterday is another manifestation of his long-suffering grace. It's the goodness of God that ought to lead you to repentance. But then he says that we may know him not only in creation and in our personal experience because of his goodness to us, but we may know him in history. He's the God who, as verse 26 Determine the times before appointed and the bounds of the nation's habitations. God has moved in history. The turning back of the Spanish Armada, the destruction of Napoleon's army in the snow, the turning back of Adolf Hitler, these were not mere accidents of history. God was at work. History is his story. And we see the sovereignty of God working in the affairs of men. And as we read through the Old Testament, imagine that a man like Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled an empire from India to North Africa, 126 countries under his 
sway. And that that man was brought to such a humble state, hobbled in his own royal garden, eating grass like an ox. He writes his own testimonial, his own tract, and he writes, Those that exalt themselves, God is able to abase. (laughs) God knows how to get the attention of the most powerful and mighty men in the world. God who has acted in history. Now it's, of course, one of the great ironies that none of the great days in history are found in the history books. Isn't that amazing? Creation isn't treated as a historical day. The fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the giving of the law, the call of Abraham, the incarnation, the transfiguration, the crucifixion, may get a footnote somewhere in Roman history, the birth of the church, certainly those future dates of the rapture of the church and the coming again of Christ, none of these days are treated as history. And the reason is that all the great days of history are the days when God entered into time, when God acted in the world. And says Peter, men are willingly ignorant of these things. They want to be ignorant of this. Because if God entered into time and space and manifested himself, he's the God with whom we have to do. And men don't want to think that way. And then we read that we may know him in our personal experience. He says in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord. All right, now here's the idea. That God works in the affairs of nations. That they should seek the Lord. The wars and the tumults and the pestilence and the famines. God allows these things to happen that they might seek the Lord. Whenever these things happen, all of a sudden, whether it's September 11, whatever it is, all of a sudden, there's this instinctive response in the heart of man. Why did God let that happen? What God? What God are you referring to? You mean the God that you don't believe in, the God you ignore, the God you despise, the God whose name you use as a a blasphemy and a curse word? Is that the God you're talking about? The God that you want to bless America? All of a sudden, people come to realize that the God of history is, is my God. Whether I acknowledge him or not, he's mine. I mean, I am subject. This is the God to whom I am accountable And here Paul says, probably one of the most thrilling things in the Bible, he is not far from every one of us. As close as a prayer. The first heart longing, the first cry out to God, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think a lot of people were saved before they got saved, you know. They think they got saved on such and such a date. But the fact is that the moment their heart turned to the Lord, the Lord sealed it right there. He didn't wait until they said the words. He hears our thoughts afar off. He doesn't wait till we say it. Now, we get, we get the assurance when we say it. But he hears our cry the moment it's real in our hearts, before it ever comes to our lips. He hears it. And he responds. Because the Bible says that though he is slow to anger... He is ready to pardon. He's ready to pardon. He steps in in the nick of time, a very present help in time of need. He's right there. 
And he's just waiting, longing for any evidence of faith. He doesn't wait on my faith-o-meter. It doesn't quite measure up yet. Come on, try a little harder. It's not the amount of faith we have. It's the object of faith. I know whom I have believed. And the moment my faith is transferred from my works or my religion or my brain or whatever it is that I'm trusting in, and I say, I'm not going to trust in that anymore. I'm going to trust in the... I'm saved. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the wonder of it, that there are multitudes of people in the world, and if you, if you press them, they would be, they would be, it would be beyond them to explain to you what actually has happened to them. But they came to a point when they became unbelievers. You have to become an unbeliever before you become a believer. You have to lose faith in yourself and your own schemes and your own philosophies and your own thinking. That's why Jesus died at a place called Skull Hill. Because a skull is just an empty brain, an empty head. It's just, it's just the, the shadow of a man. It's just what's left of a man when, when all his thoughts have come to an end. And when we get saved, that's what happens. We come to the end of ourselves. We stop our arguing. We stop our reasoning. We stop our excusing and accusing. And we give up. And he takes us. Oh, the wonder of it. And so Paul preaches this message. And he says that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. He is maker of all. He is Lord of all. He is giver of all. He is sustainer of all. He is near to all. Though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember Jesus loves me. Every step of the way, he follows that wandering soul. And you would think that after a long journey away from God, when they turned, they'd have a long way back. But that's not how it is. The minute they turn, he's there. There's only once in the Bible that you ever read of God in a hurry, and that's when the father runs to meet the prodigal. Oh, the heart of God toward the sinner. If only we could capture that in our own hearts. If we could share that kind of urgency and instancy and longing to see people saved. How God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How Jesus wept over the very people who were going to murder him. Unrequited love. But he couldn't help himself. He overflowed with compassion and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Can I weep over Cincinnati? Can you weep over your city? Oh, that they might be saved. That's the longing of the heart of the Lord. And Paul breathes out that prayer. He, he says, listen, fellows, there's a God in heaven. And you may think, you know, that of course, he was, he was taking a shot at these Epicureans uh, and the Stoics and, and the Jews who were there, the, the Epicureans, uh, their, their name of God was Intermundia, the one who dwells between the worlds, the one who's way out there somewhere. And the Stoic, their name for God was Apatheia, the God who could care less. Oh, he says, listen, he's right there. He's, he's listening for your voice. He's, he's listening for your heart cry. He's so close to you. He couldn't get any closer. He's longing to put his arms around you. That's the God who is. 
the unknown God, the God you don't know. I happen to know him, and I want you to know that he's right there. Don't you realize that that heartbeat you just felt in your heart, he gave it to you. In him we live and move and have our being. In other words, he's the one who's sustaining you at this very moment. Can't you trust someone who would give you your life and breath, who would, who would sustain you all these years? Can't you trust? If you trust God for your daily life, can not, you not entrust him with your eternal life? And then he comes to this issue of idolatry. And he says, gentlemen, it doesn't make sense. You're smart men. You know, you're, you're thinking men. For as much then, verse 29, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God has like gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. You get the point, don't you? God hates it when people worship animals. Because he made us in the image of God. That makes you an animal, doesn't it? If the God you worship is money, that makes you worthless, worth less than, than an animal. It makes you an inanimate substance, an unfeeling, useless bit of lump of something, a piece of metal. I mean, what, what exactly are you saying? If your God is like this, well, then you're less than that, aren't you? Gentlemen, you're demeaning yourself by doing this. You were made in the image of God. And the God who is, is a, is a wonderful God. And when you make him out of sticks and stones, you're demeaning yourself, don't you see? Because you're made in his image. And you know, there was a time in the history of the world when God overlooked this stupidity. He winked at it. He, he bore with it. You can't do that anymore, gentlemen. Don't you know that the God of the universe has not only revealed himself in creation and in providence and in history, but he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the man whom he has appointed to be judge of all, he showed up one day and he, he came to this little planet and he manifested what God was like. The man whom he has appointed. And you're going to give an assurance? You're going to give a, a, an account to him someday? And God proved that this was his man when he raised him from the dead. And that's where everything came apart. They started to argue. Some mocked him. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. How be it? Verse 34. Now, this is an amazing statement. Imagine you're at Harvard now. You're standing before the professors. You have preached your heart out. You've done your best to woo them over. You haven't started the way you would have started with some Pharisees. You started way back at creation, and you've... You've just eased your way up to the incarnation. <laughs> and you've brought them along almost to the point of the cross. But then, but then the whole thing falls apart. And they start to mock. And others, others say, enough of that. We'll, we'll hear you some other time. They procrastinate. How be it? Verse 34. Certain men clave to him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Now, some people have been a bit hard on Paul, and they said, you know, this sort of philosophizing Paul and, and uh, you know, arguing the case by quoting these Greek poets and so on, bad move. As far as we know, there was no assembly started here in Athens. Um, and, and, you know, it, re it really is not a very good show, Paul. I hope you learned your lesson. Now, can you imagine visiting Harvard and preaching? And the first time you preach in Harvard, one of the professors gets saved, one of the chief society ladies in town, and a bunch of others? I'd kind of be encouraged. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'd be encouraged. Oh, the power of the gospel to reach one of these philosophers out of the midst of this, of this oppressive, demonic, idolatrous culture to rescue a man like that. He, he got up in the morning, a resolute agnostic, living in a corrupt culture, committed to a dead-end philosophy, and by sunset, he was a child of God, Amen. born from above. Amazing, isn't it? I told some folks a, a story that really has encouraged me, because I think sometimes we, we look at Athens, and if we really think about it, we would think that's the last place I'd go to preach the gospel. I mean, there's no hope for that crowd. How would you ever begin to talk about God to a crowd like that? And sometimes we look at certain subcultures in our society, we look at certain groups of people, and we think to ourselves, they're beyond it. How would you ever reach them? Many of you know Brother Dan Snadden. He is an impeccable gentleman. Every hair always exactly in place, not like mine. My hair decides what it's going to look like about 3 a.m. Uh, every night, and uh, I just sort of live with it. But... But he's always very natally dressed, a real gentleman, you know. He was preaching in an assembly in Burlington, Ontario, one night. A bunch of, you know, uh, gray flannel types, uh, old country, Scottish and Irish, very staid Christians, you know. And all in their suits and everything. And as he, right in the middle of his message, suddenly in through the back door comes this long-haired gink. Leather jacket, tattoos, body piercings, you know. And he sits down in the back row. This is a midweek meeting night. And so right in the middle of his ministry to the Christians, Dan Snadden stops and he starts preaching the gospel. And all the saints wonder if Brother Dan slipped a cog, you see. And they're not quite sure what's happening. But anyway, they pray for Dan. And uh, <laughs> the young fellow comes up to him right after the meeting and says, man, I need to get saved. He's a motor motorcycle gang member in Hamilton. And he gets saved. And he says, you know, i got a bunch of friends that need to hear this. Would you come and share this with them? Okay. He gets the address, and on the Monday night, he drives down to this really seedy part of Hamilton. Gets out of the car, locks the door, crosses the street, and as he approaches the apartment, the manager runs out of a little bottom apartment, and he says, sir, what are you doing here? Well, I've come to visit that apartment up there. Oh, sir, I don't even go up there. Don't go up there. <laughs> what are you doing up there? Well, I'm going for a Bible study. <laughs> he said, man, they'll kill you. He said, well, no, I'm going by invitation. He said, look, sir, I can't vouch for you. That, that crowd, I just leave them alone. Anyway, Dan ascends the stairs. He goes in and hear all these big dudes sitting there with, waiting to hear this message. 
And Dan, in his quiet, gentlemanly way, explains to them about the Savior's love. Six of them got saved. Well, they start coming out to this assembly. And, you know, this is, this is their crowd. And uh, eventually they say, now we'd like to get baptized. And the brethren interview them and decide that you know, this is, we want Dan to baptize us. And so the night comes. And uh, they say, now we've always done everything together. Is it okay if we all get in the pool together? <laughs> Well, I suppose there's enough room. And so these great big guys all lined up across the back and little Dan baptizing these young fellows one at a time. When, when they, they were finished, Dan said, I've never done this before in my life, but he came to the front of the baptistry and he spoke to the audience and he said, perhaps there's someone here tonight and you, you were saved years ago and you've never been baptized. What hinders you from being baptized? And a man stood up in the audience. And he said, that's, one of my, that's my son that just got baptized tonight. And he said, I was saved as a young man. But I met this girl. And she told me that if I went through with this baptism thing, and she, she'd have nothing to do with me. And he said, all these years, I've shut my mouth about Jesus. And I betrayed him. And that's how my son ended up like that. And only God's grace has reached him. And I'm ashamed of it. He said, honey, I don't know what, what you're going to do. But he said, I've got to get baptized. And he kicked off his shoes and he walked up and climbed over into the, <laughs> into the pool. And they baptized him too. We could do with a few stories like that around here, couldn't we? <laughs> the tremendous power of the gospel. To save people, we think. We'd ride by them and think, no hope for that boy. Oh, really? God says, I specialize in people like that boy. I save witch doctors. I save Christian murderers. I am able to reach into the hearts and lives of people. You think they're closed to you. I want to tell you something. I know where the chink in the armor is. They may think that they've got themselves covered and there's no way I can get in. But I happen to know where there's the little join where the armor is. And I'm able to get the word of God right in there. It's great, isn't it? I, I was telling uh, a few stories here about how God has reached some people that we would think would be pretty hard to reach. About a, a man I met down in Florida this winter. He's 104 years old, a German fellow. He's, he's got a whole wall full of patents, brilliant engineer. And uh, he saw this pretty girl, and he wanted to date her. And she said, no, I'm a Christian. And uh, he kept pestering her, and finally she said, Listen, you meet me at the door of the chapel and come in. I'll sit with you in the gospel meeting, and then we'll leave at the door again. And if you want to do that, that's fine. <laughs> so he thought, Well, it's a start. And so he came out and sat with her in the gospel meeting. Well, there was a Down syndrome boy in the assembly, and after the meeting, he came up to this genius and said, You need to get saved. Well, this carried on week after week, and this German fellow became increasingly irritated until finally he said in exasperation to the young lady, yeah, that's, you know, that's who Christianity is for, people like this. And she said, wouldn't it be a tragedy if that little boy with his limited intelligence ends up going to heaven and you with all your brains go to hell? Like, who's the stupid one? And that night he got saved. There's a little fellow over in Northern Ireland. His name's Bertie. He had a stroke in his mother's womb, and he came out crippled. 
he is one of the most fearless little evangelists in Northern Ireland. He works in a hardware store, and everybody who comes in there gets the gospel. And I don't mean sort of. He used to see a fellow uh, cross the street and go into the pub. No one could miss this fellow. Uh, he was a professional wrestler on television uh, called the Mad Monk. He had long white hair down past his shoulders. And he had quite a swagger, but in his wrestling, he had damaged his back. And he had, his career had collapsed. And he was really bottomed out about this thing. And he used to go over and drink his sorrows in the pub. And so Bertie started coming to the door and calling to the man. And saying, why don't you come over here for a minute? And the man would come over, what do you want? Well, he said, I'd like to invite you to a gospel meeting. And the man would curse and swear and turn and walk away, you see. So Bertie started coming after the little fellow, man, chasing him across the street. And he'd say, I know why you don't want to come. You're afraid. That's why. You're, af you're, just, you're just afraid. And it drove the mad monk mad. And finally, to prove little Bertie wrong, he came to a gospel meeting. And he got saved. And now the two of them go through West Belfast, which is IRA territory. It would be worth your life to walk through there. Little Bertie and the mad monk. And they go together, door to door, through West Belfast. So, you know, sometimes we look at people in our neighborhood and we think that would be the last person I'd think of to get saved. You know what you ought to do at that moment? You ought to confess to the Lord that you've really made God a lot smaller than he really is. And to pray specifically for that person that they would be saved and prove you wrong. Wouldn't that be a good thing if we, if, if we sat down and, and we thought about, uh, let's see, Ted Turner, the Ayatollah Khomeini, or, or uh, uh, Osama bin Laden. What about that fellow from the rat hole over in Iraq, Saddam Hussein? Could God save someone like that? It would be just like him to do it, wouldn't it? Can you imagine if Saddam Hussein came out of that prison cell and announced to the Muslim world, I've been wrong. I've been wicked. And I, I confess my guilt. I've met Jesus Christ and he's changed my life. Can you imagine what that would do? Well, that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar sending out his testimony to 127 provinces and telling everybody that he'd found out who the true God is after all? And it wasn't the God of the Assyrians. It was the God of the Bible. Our God is too small. If we think that he only works within our bounds and we say, well, yeah, Lord, that's an easy one. You can, you can work on that one. But no, forget him. He's, he's too tough. He'll never get saved. I, I preached a message over in Ireland, and a, a plumber there named George Gergen decided that he'd like to start handing it out. And he, since 1989, he's handed out about a quarter of a million copies of that tape. One of those tapes <clears throat> fell into the hands of a fellow named Bill Blackmore in England. Bill Blackmore was one of the up-and-ups in the Jehovah's Witness movement in England. He'd been raised in the Jehovah's Witness. And two weeks before he was to go to their European Congress uh, to speak, he was one of their guest lecturers, uh, this tape came into his hands. Now, he'd been having growing doubts about the movement. And as he listened to that tape, his heart said yes to the message of the gospel. And Bill Blackmore got saved. He went ahead to the Congress, and he got up, and he told them about his upbringing in the Jehovah's Witness. And he told about his rising doubts, and he told about how he found the answer in Christ, and he preached the gospel, and they let him finish. 
And he said since then, this is a year ago, he said since then about 130 Jehovah's Witness families have come out of the movement. And he's asked for permission to duplicate the tape. He says, I have mailing lists of all the Jehovah's Witness in England, and I want to send them a copy of this tape. You see, we see these systems as impregnable fortresses, and there's no way we could get in there. And the Lord says, well, actually, I happen to know how to get in there. Don't shortchange God. If God could save one of these Areopagites, if God could save a Harvard professor, the first time you heard the gospel, if God could save people that we think are just beyond his grace, then we haven't looked in the mirror lately. Because what we're looking at tonight is a room full of miracles. Every one of us was in the clutches of the enemy. We were walking according to the course of this world. We were subject to the spirit that works in, in the wickedness that we see around us. We were the children of wrath, even as others. We had no hope and no God, and we were lost. And God saved us. And if God could save me, well, he can save anybody. It took the same death of Christ, the same work of the Spirit, the same revelation of God's word to save me as it does the very worst of the worst. And we need to regain our confidence that we too could go into cities like Corinth and Athens and Rome and Cincinnati and we could proclaim the unvarnished word of God and the spirit of God could take it up and use it like an arrow to the heart of someone, perhaps a very unlikely person, and reach that soul for himself. And he could use us to do it. And so if we could lay claim to this tonight, to think of man, a man named Saul, saved by the grace of God, he could never get over it. And he was willing to go into a city like Athens all alone. He didn't want to be alone. He, that wasn't his plan. This was an unplanned trip. But he ends up standing before that august body and pointing them to the Lord. And there were those that day, a number of them, who, unknown to their friends, were sick and tired of the emptiness and the purposelessness and the hopelessness of their pagan religion. And they reached out and trusted Christ. And how do you know? But the someone you'll meet this week. Who wears the best of clothing, perhaps, drives the nicest of cars, has been thinking to themselves, I've got it all, and I'm spiritually bankrupt. Or some person that you see walking by in the street and they're covered with tattoos and everything about them screams, look at me. But in their heart of hearts, they're the loneliest soul in Cincinnati. And they cried out last night on their beds, if there's a God in heaven, oh God, help me. There's a little book you might want to pick up if you can find it. It's called Incidents in Gospel Work by Charles Stanley. Not the Charles Stanley of Atlanta. This was one of the early brethren over in the UK. And how God used him. On one occasion, riding through a town on his bicycle, the Spirit of God laid on his heart to quote a Bible verse. He got off his bicycle, and at the top of his voice, he shouted down the street, the main street of this little town, that gospel verse. 
He went to get back on his bicycle, and it was just as if the Spirit of God said to him, do it again. Well, you know, if it seems kind of silly to shout out a, me- <laughs> a verse on, on down the street, uh, imagine doing it twice. But he got, got back off his bicycle, and he lifted his voice, and the second time, he cried out this verse down the street. He got on his bicycle. He started down the street when a door opened, and a woman stepped out into the street, and she said, Oh, sir, oh, sir, this is the message I needed to hear. He said, I was standing in my kitchen, and I cried out, God, if there's a God in heaven, speak to me. Tell me the truth. And then you shouted that verse. And I said, if it's really you, say it again. (laughs) You know, if we were aligning ourselves under the Spirit of God, And we were going out into the day with this confidence. God has personally commissioned me to speak for him. And he has given me the, the work fellowship of the Holy Spirit of God. So that before I speak the word, the Holy Spirit of God has already prepared the ground. When I do speak the word, the Spirit of God is going to take it and drive it home to their hearts. And I may not see it. I may sow and another may reap, but I have this confidence. There's a day coming when the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. And so you go out into the day. And you say, Lord, I've got this little word from you, a little verse, uh, a thought about Christ. I'll be disappointed if I get to the end of the day and you haven't given me a clear opportunity to share this word. You know, God will do it. I've told people many, many places that when I first went out preaching, it was great to preach to a crowd like this. But to speak to individuals along the way, I found it extremely difficult. And I used to go home at night and I'd be guilty. And I used to think of all the great things I should have said. But I didn't. And finally one night I got out of my bed and I got down beside my bed and I said, Oh God, I'm a chicken. You know I'm a chicken, I know I'm a chicken. If you can use chickens, I'm available. I want to be used. So I'm going to think about the gospel. What's so great about the gospel? I'm going to to think about what's so wonderful about the Lord Jesus. I'm going to fill my mind and heart with thoughts of the wonders of Christ, the beauties of Christ, the great things about being saved. And I'm going to start praying for the lost. I've been very careless. I prayed in generic terms, but I started to make a list of people I wanted to see saved and specifically pray for them. And then when I'd get up in the morning, I'd say, Now, Lord, I'm thinking about this thought. You know the person who exactly needs to hear that. Would you bring them to me? And if you don't mind, let them bring up the conversation. And if they do, I'll try to jump in. Because I used to try this, you know, sit down with someone. Hi, hi, how are you? Good, fine. Me too. So how how things? Good, good. Yeah, me too. So you live around here? Yeah, me too. Uh, Like nothing ever went anywhere until finally you blurt something out. Are you saved or, you know? And it's just like, you just like said, I have AIDS. You know, it's like, stay away from me. Like it never worked. I saw some people and it just was so natural to them and I used to envy them. And then I realized, you know, it's not natural ability It's supernatural, isn't it? Lord, teach me how to do this. You know how to win souls. You're the supreme soul winner. Show me how to do this. 
little by little, I began. And I was just so amazed at how often God would do this. He still does it for me. When I was over in Japan, I, I went out for a walk one day. I was up in Kurizawa, and I said, Lord, bring somebody to me today that speaks English. I, I don't speak any Japanese, and virtually no one up there does speak English, and, or at least to an American, they won't speak English. And uh, so I just I was zigging and zagging, walking down streets I'd never been before in my life. And suddenly a man came out of a store, and he called to me in English. And I turned, and I looked, and here was a man coming across the parking lot to me, a Caucasian fellow, and he had... Canada on his t-shirt. So he came up to me and said, can you tell me where the um, information bureau is? And I happen to know the other day I'd taken a walk in the Ginza and it was over there. And So I told him and I said, what are you doing in Japan? And he said, well, I, I live here. I've been here 20 years. Are you from Canada originally? Yeah. Where from? Uh, Toronto. I said, well, uh, isn't that something? I, I just live in a little town across the lake, St. Catharines. And he gave me a wry grin, and he said, well, actually, I come from St. Catharines. Nobody knows where that is, so I just say Toronto. He went to the same high school as my son. You know, God says, if you'd like to speak to someone, Jabe, how about somebody from your hometown? Would that, would that do? Just down the street from you? And so anyway, uh, he said, what are you doing in Japan? And I said, well, I'm, I'm teaching the Bible. He said, really? Yeah. He said, you know, I need that. He said, I never thought I'd look in that direction for answers to life. But he said, I've had some pretty rough years. And, and just recently, I went out and bought a Bible. I have no idea where to read it. I said, well, look, I'm just down the street here. Why don't you come down morning and evening at the Bible house here? Oh, he said, I'm sorry. I, I'm just, I, I've never been in Karuizal in my life before. And I, for some reason, I just came up here in a venture, thought I might get a little work or something. But he said, where will you be on the weekend? And I thought, well, he'll never show up there. I'm going to be in Takasaki. Well, Takasaki is 184 hairpin turns down the mountain between Karuizawa and Takasaki. I thought he'll never go there. And so I said, well, I'll be in Takasaki. He said, Takasaki? I live in Takasaki. He lives two minutes from the chapel, just down the street. And so he was there on the Sunday, and he's been coming ever since to hear the gospel. I don't know that he's saved yet. But I just said, well, here's, here's a fellow. His name's Bart Crow. And God said, I see this man. I saw, I saw him go out and get that Bible. I see what's in his heart. And so here's a, here's a fellow, Nicholson. He's not real good at witnessing, but, you know, he, he tries. <laughs> Nobody else around I can use right now. So, I, yeah, we can work it out. And so he, he got me to zig instead of zag. And, and so that I ended up walking past this little 7-Eleven in Kurizawa in the back streets of this town up in the middle of the mountains of Japan. Well, the fellow came out the street. Why did he want to see that information bureau? I have no idea. Maybe he doesn't even know to this day why, but, but God knew why. Now, was that just an accident? <laughs> it was a divine appointment. It was an arrangement from heaven, wasn't it? And he didn't know it, and I didn't know it, but God knew it. The only thing you need for the job is willingness. Like, even if you say the wrong thing, he'll work it out. You know, he'll, he'll still use it. <laughs> One of the best young preachers in Canada today, just coming up, uh, his name is Dennis LeBlanc. And Dennis LeBlanc was living a wicked life. His father was an evangelist. He was living a wicked life, far from God. He was down at college in the States, out drinking and drugs. He um, brought a friend home from college one weekend. And when they walked in the door, the friend said to his father, what do you do? He said, I'm, I'm a gospel preacher. What's that? You don't know what the gospel is? Oh. oh, he explained the gospel to him. 
And the fellow said, well, thanks. And that was the end of the conversation. But when they got back in the car to head back to college, this fellow says to Dennis, can I ask you some questions about what your dad said? Now, see, we'd been praying for Dennis. We'd pray that God would bring someone into his life to witness to him. Well, he didn't need that. He could quote all the preachers. He knew all the Bible verses. What he needed was to hear the gospel coming out of his own mouth, you see. And so here he is now, riding along in the car, arguing for the gospel, explaining the gospel to this fellow. So they pull into the parking lot at the college, and the fellow says to him, "Uh, one last question, why don't you believe it? Well, he's so devastated, he can't go to classes for three days. He just lies in his bed and weeps. And finally, the third night, he gets up and he gets on a Christian chat room, and he starts talking to someone. And this dear soul, whoever they were, (laughs) I mean, if I was making a list of all the verses to give to someone who is interested in their soul, this would not be on the list. The person says, oh, here's my golden opportunity to witness, right? This guy is eager. He wants to know how to be saved. So this is the verse I'll give him. And she types in, the very hairs of your head are numbered. (laughs) Like, this is a bad choice here, right? The very hairs of your head are numbered. Dennis is absolutely flummoxed. He, like, he's poleaxed. He doesn't, he just is stunned. He thinks, now he already knows John 3.16 and 3.36 and the Romans wrote. He knows all that. But he never thought of this one. (laughs) This just blindsided him. He's looking at this verse and he's thinking, I have been blaspheming this God. I've been pushing him away all these years. And he's still counting the hairs on my head. How can I refuse a love like that? And he got down that night and he got saved. And he called his brother, Wade Jr., who was also not saved, and he led his brother to the Lord. And the two of them are two of the most fiery, some of the best evangelists today in the the eastern provinces of Canada. (laughs) So, you know, if I was taking a, a, a course on how to witness, I'd say, now, here are some verses to memorize. Okay, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Be sure and get that one because you never know when you'll be able... I mean, it's, it's not the right verse. There's nothing about the blood, the cross, sin, salvation. There's none of it. Right? Bam! That's what God used. Well, why did God use it? Well, because that's, that's the instrument he had on hand. He'll use the jawbone of an ass. If that's what he's got to use, he doesn't need to use anything. He, he made the world out of nothing. He could speak and blow us into eternity. He doesn't need anything, but he chooses to use us. And so you keep saying, well, God can't use me because I I can't do this and I don't do that and I haven't got... God says, man, you sound like just exactly the right person for me to use. Because if I used you, I'd obviously get all the glory for it, wouldn't I? Hmm. So when you see this job description of the people and the assembly that God uses, when people say, well, you don't understand, our assembly is really small, really weak. Really this, really that. I say, yeah, 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 sounds good. Oh, that's, that's excellent. But that sounds exactly like the kind of people God uses. God has chosen the things that are nothing. He's chosen the foolish. He's chosen the weak, hasn't he? That all the glory might be of God and not of us. And so all those things you think disqualify you actually are your qualifications. You're the right person for the job. And God will use you. And you know something else? He will custom design a ministry that exactly suits you. He doesn't expect you to be Bob Brown or Warren Henderson or Joe Reese. Those guys love knocking on doors. They think it's a, like a TV game show. Behind one of these doors is a prize, and I'm going to find the prize. You know, and this is, you can hardly hold them in the car. They love that stuff. 
And, and if you're not like that, God doesn't expect you to be like that. He didn't make everybody a Peter. He made some Andrews too, you know. And so God made you like you because he wanted one of you. When he wanted a weeping prophet, he made a Jeremiah. When he wanted a thundering prophet, he made an Elijah. And when he wanted you, he made you. Of all people in the world, you are best suited to be you. And he's custom designed you with certain abilities, yes, certain, certain tendencies, certain personalities, certain capabilities. It's true. They're all there, and they should all be put on the altar. But when it comes down to it, we're going to have to learn, like Paul, that, that we glory in our infirmities. Because that's where the power of Christ rests upon us. And where we feel most weak and least likely. I'm the last guy in the world to say I'm an evangelist. I, every time I accept, I've, got, I've, I've said I'm going to speak at all these things in this public school and this and that and the other thing. I'm terrified. And the closer the time gets, the more anxious I get until I've got like this, this block, this concrete block in my stomach. And I fly. I wonder that the plane can even take off. And I, I arrive in Ireland and I, I, I actually get up in front of the Christians sometimes before the gospel meetings and I say, folks, I'm here under false pre- pretenses. You think I'm an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. I don't know how to do this. I just get up and talk and tell people, I think Jesus is wonderful. What do you think? Give him a try. You know, I mean, I... I <laughs> But, you know, God uses it. And I think he uses it just because I'm no good. I, I don't, if, if you ask me to do something else, well, yeah, okay, maybe I, I think, well, that's something I think I can handle. The Lord says, nah, let's not do that. I'll tell you what, Nicholson, why don't you go and preach the gospel? And I just go with fear and trembling. And, and I realize, Lord, if you don't pull this off, there's no way this is going to work. The Lord says, yeah, well, I can pull it off. And time and time again, he pulls it off. And he, and he uses me, and I just stand back in utter amazement. And that's exactly what he wants to do with us, you see. I've told this story many times that my brother, he'd be terrified to get up here. He's afraid of his own voice. Well, his wife died when she was 35. He left him with three little kids. Before that, he'd worked in a print shop with a Christian fellow who was a deaf mute. And so my brother Bill learned to speak with his hands, to sign. And... Um, when his wife died, some months later, this, this fellow came to my brother Bill and he said, you know, there are a lot of hearing impaired people in Ontario. They never get anyone to come and speak to them. I think it would be a tremendous thing if you would come and tell them what God means to you and how he helped you through this terrible time in your life. So my brother has ended up speaking to three large conferences of hearing impaired people, sharing the gospel with them, and telling them about the reality of Christ in his life, and he doesn't have to open his mouth. Like, if you're afraid of hearing your own voice, God says, well, we can still work this out. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? That's the kind of God we have. And so I don't know what it is with you. I know one young guy, and he, he loves sports. And one day he was so convicted about all the time he spent in sports. And so he thought, maybe God can use this somehow. And so he began to write to all of the sports figures who were going through a slump. Because he said, you know, we're on the top, they get tons of mail. When they go on the bottom, they're just abandoned. So if you're used to getting lots of mail, and then you don't get any mail, and then you get one letter, you'll read it, won't you? And he's had some of the most wonderful opportunities. Now, it's not my ministry. I wouldn't even know who to send, send to them. You know, I don't know who's up or who's down. It doesn't matter to me. But that's his, that's his interest in life, and God says, well, you know, I can use that. 
And so I don't know what you've got to put on the altar, but I do know this, that God wants to use you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he wants to use us so we can share in the joy of a job well done. You know that famous hymn, 19 stanzas long. We won't sing it in closing. Emmanuel's Land by Anne Ross Cousin. The words of Samuel Rutherford woven into a beautiful poem. And one of the stanzas, which is not included in our hymn book for obvious reasons, talks about uh, Samuel Rutherford's little hometown called Anwath in Scotland. And uh, Anne Ross' cousin, taking Samuel Rutherford's words and putting it into poem form, wrote this little stanza. Oh, if one soul from Anwath meets me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Christian, don't miss the opportunity to sow into the hearts and minds of people, many of whom are desperate for help. You don't know it, they'd never let you know. A little word spoken, a word in season to those that are weary may spring up into everlasting life and someday they'll thank you for inviting them to join you in loving our Savior and living forever in his blessed presence. Shall we pray? Our Father, thou hast spoken to us through thy word. We give thee all the credit. We thank thee for seeing us here in this little planet off in the corner of thy universe. Thou art not far off. Thou art not far from any, every one of us. Thou art a very present help. Thou art our God. In the words of the Lord Jesus, my Father and I will come and make our abode with you. We may say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Oh, help us to get over this silly fear of what people might think of us. doesn't matter a snap of the fingers what they think of us, but it doesn't matter an eternity what they think of Christ. Help us, Father, to, to love the Lord Jesus more. We know that if we do, we'll, we'll speak about him. We won't be able to help ourselves. Help us to love men and women more. To be like John, a burning and a shining light in this dark world. To care about people. And to, to prove it by speaking to them about their souls. We thank thee for the mighty power of the word. We thank thee for the ministry of the spirit. We thank thee that we are not alone. That thou art able to orchestrate our lives and redirect our path so that we come into contact with the very people who need to hear what we are thinking about the Lord Jesus at that moment. Help us, we pray, to have that sweet confidence that as we go out into the day, the God of heaven is eager to use us to lead someone to the Savior. Give us the joy of being participants, even when we are rebuffed, to realize that it's a privilege to suffer shame for his name. 
and to realize that he suffered far more for us than we ever will suffer for him. We know that there's a day coming when we won't be able to be put to shame for him. We won't be able to suffer for him. We won't be able to be sat to sacrifice for him. We'll be past all that. We'll be home in glory. As another has said, we have forever to enjoy our victories, but only a few short years to win them. Help us then to commit ourselves this evening. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm not good at this. It frightens me, but I want to be willing. I want to be a witness for thee. Show me how. Bring people to me that ask me, what is it about you? And help us to be ready to give an answer to those who ask of the hope that is in us. The sure and certain hope that Christ is Savior and heaven is our home. We commend ourselves to thee now tonight. Thank thee for this happy time together in conference. Because thou hast been here and thou hast cheered our hearts. And we give thee all the glory. And thank thee for that lovely man at thy right hand. A prince and a savior who bears the marks, the evidence of his love for us. When he gave himself at Calvary. Once more before we part, we bless our Redeemer's name. We bow at his feet and the story repeat. And the lover of sinners adore. Help us as we come out tomorrow to serve thee, to worship thee to fellowship with thy people, that we might do it in spirit and truth, and there might be some joy for thy heart, as there certainly is joy for ours, as we thank thee in the Savior's name. Amen.